A dragon head with stainless steel scales sticks its neck out over a blanket of dark green forest. It's the first thing you see when you round the bend on the Greenhorn Highway, heading south from Florence through the wet mountains, about an hour west of Pueblo, Colorado. For a minute, you could be in Germany or Middle Earth. Before you, a castle. Not a replica or a theme park, not some painted plywood Ren Faire set. Right there, not a hundred yards from the road, a moat and a drawbridge, flying buttresses, wrought iron balconies, ramparts, battlements, turrets, and two towers that rise more than a hundred feet above the ground. Sort of I but, mean, I think if you figure 10 feet per floor. Yeah, but like, look at this, this archway here. Look. Okay, I think it's 80. So I'll stand in this yeah. archway. It's gotta be, a, it's a hundred, it's probably a hundred feet. Yeah. Did you see all this stuff in here too? The, and he's got all this wood flooring. The stones have been carefully laid and set in mortar. They're not uniform in size or shape, and they jut out from the exterior walls in a slightly haphazard manner, giving the castle a kind of shaggy look. The centerpiece of the building is a soaring atrium with wood floors, a steep roof, and stained glass windows, like a church sanctuary. The towers are arranged around the atrium, reaching skyward. Whew, the top of this stone turret, you can see the mountains in every direction. There is not much in the way of safety railings or protection of any sort. I think I'm gonna need to sit down here. Most of the ironwork looks thin and the castle is plastered with climate your own risk signs. The stairs and balconies are covered in steel mesh like the top of a metal patio table, meaning you can see through them straight down to the ground below. And the metalwork at the top, also done by Bishop himself, feels rickety, even if it isn't. I gotta get out. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm done. Yeah, Noel, you made it to the top. I'm about four steps from the top, but uh, that's far enough for me. Yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> it's a massive structure, almost unbelievably so, especially given that it was built entirely by one person. This is glorious what I'm doing here. Wake up now! Our armed forces all fought and died in vain. This is Jim Bishop, the castle builder. His ecstatic, anti-government rants, which can be seen in countless videos on YouTube, have long been almost as much a part of the attraction as the castle itself. Our old government's psychopathic murders are all psychopathic murders. This ain't no country. For the past four decades, Bishop has spent every summer on this two and a half acre piece of land in Colorado's wet mountains. He bought it in 1959 for $450 when he was 15 years old. Through zoning disputes, skirmishes with the law, the specter of the IRS, health problems, and personal tragedy, Jim kept building. He dug holes, mixed mortar, and, stone by stone, created this massive castle, his own personal monument to freedom, hardworking people, and the American dream. Me and God are a team here. I'm newsworthy. I built all of this. George Bush ain't newsworthy. George Bush didn't build no real castle with his hands. This is the only real castle left in the world. Though it can't be verified with absolute certainty, Bishop claims that his castle is the largest one-man building project in the world. It's right up there, I'd say. That's Professor Joe Farb Hernandez of San Jose State University. She's the executive director of Spaces, a nonprofit archive dedicated to preserving and raising awareness about art environments like Bishop Castle around the world. She compares Jim Bishop's work to similar projects like the Watts Towers in Los Angeles and Cheval's Ideal Palace in France, where the creators seldom have formal training. She says Justo's Cathedral in Madrid, Spain might be bigger, but it's hard to say. I'm, I, it's a, definitely a big monumental piece. <laughs> but as to whether it's the biggest, 
somebody else would have to do that math. <laughs> it hardly matters. By almost any standard, Jim Bishop's castle is a monumental triumph. It's become a must-see roadside attraction, and more than 100,000 visitors come from around the world to see the castle each year. But now, after all these years of Herculean physical labor, Jim Bishop faces an even greater challenge. In April 2015, the bishops learned that Jim had a rare and aggressive form of cancer. And to make matters worse, rumors and then news reports began to spread on social media. Bishop Castle had somehow, apparently, been stolen and renamed Castle Church for the redemption of the office bishop. This is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On today's show, we bring you the story of Bishop Castle and the strange dispute over who owns it. Jim and Phoebe Bishop live in a working-class neighborhood just across the highway from the old steel mill in Pueblo. Their home is modest, but not surprisingly, adorned with a hand-mortared rock wall and a custom wrought-iron fence. There are a handful of chainsaw sculptures, an eagle, an owl, a dead tree that was carved into a dragon, stationed throughout the garden beds, which are full of peach-colored iris in full bloom. Their youngest daughter, Danita, a veteran of the Navy, greets us at the gate with her baby boy and introduces us to her mom, Phoebe Bishop, Jim's wife of 48 years. Their albino chihuahua, Punkin, who's blind and deaf, high steps around us. He uses his front feet to feel his way around the furniture as we walk into the living room. Pictures of the bishop children in handmade iron frames line the walls. Phoebe leads us back to what probably used to be the dining room. There, behind a dressing screen, Jim lies on a mattress with no blankets, wearing nothing but a pair of blue briefs. He's thin, but still muscular. Cancer treatments have made him weak. He has little energy to speak, and there's a big purple bruise around the suture on his left side where the tumor was removed. But according to Phoebe, today's a good day, and Jim is feeling optimistic. He'll tell you when he's tired. Okay. He does. A native of Pueblo, Jim's childhood was marked by illness. Well, I was kind of sickly as a kid, sort of like, sort of like this right now. But I come out of it, and I'll, I'll come out of this too. Born in Hawaii during World War II, Jim's family moved to Pueblo before his first birthday and settled in a house just seven blocks from where he lives today. In the years that followed, he seemed to suffer one debilitating ailment after the next from acute nephritis to measles. Jim's father opened a sheet metal business, which he eventually turned into a welding shop specializing in ornamental wrought iron. Jim liked to spend time working with his dad in the shop, and his dad taught him how to weld at a young age. Though he was a smart kid, Jim wasn't much for school, and he dropped out when he was 15. The same year, he bought the piece of property in the wet mountains where he'd eventually build the castle. Well, in 1959, there was a man named Jake Zeller, and he had two pieces of property for sale. And he wanted so much money for that one, which I could, could afford. My folks didn't have quite enough money to make the down payment. So they borrowed money from me and we, we made a down payment. You might ask Phoebe just what the amounts were. I kind of forget there. You had 500 in the bank from mowing lawns. Yeah. You were 15 years old and the down payment was $450. The monthly payments were $30 for two years. Uh, 23 months later, you made the last payment of $150 in May of 1961, you owned the, the two and a half acres. After dropping out of school, 
Jim worked at a grocery store for a while, then eventually went into business full-time with his father at the ornamental iron shop. In the summers, the two of them would go camping on Jim's land, where they planned to build a family cabin. As a teenager and into his early 20s, Jim was an avid bodybuilder. He'd lift weights with friends in a backyard garage that an older man had converted into a gym. That was where he and Phoebe met. The night that I walked in to that garage, it was snowing. It was September the 28th of 1966. And I got to the door and I didn't want to go in. And the old man that owned the place, he says, when I called and says, can I come and exercise? He says, yeah, the little boys are here, but you'll be all right. And they were grown men, 18 and older, you know. Jimmy was 20, 22, I think, at the time. And I opened up the door and I seen these guys in these skimpy bathing suit type things that they wore to weightlift. I didn't like guys back then, and I told him so. But every time I went to work out, I mean, he just held me there four hours or whatever. Oh, we gotta go get a Coke, we gotta go do this. Um, when he asked me to marry him, which was like two weeks later, I said yes, thinking it'll never happen. It did happen. A few months later, in January of 1967, they were married. They both loved to spend time in the mountains on Jim's land, and it wasn't long before they decided to get to work building a family cabin on the lot Jim bought when he was 15. In the summer of 1969, they broke ground. It was gonna be a one-room rock cottage. But one thing led to another. Maybe a kitchen would be nice, then a second level. So we started the second level with arches and all of that stuff, which fell in, coincidentally, uh, secure places. And then he went to start the roof. And you've seen how steep it is. Well, that's because it's a mountain that's going to have snow. So we were going to have plenty of headroom. However, he made the walls that the roof set on over a story high. And I says, why are you doing that? He says, well, if you're going to make it high, you might as well make it high. So it's just been, it was one of those things that just fell into place. A few years into the construction of their stone cottage, they started hearing rumors of a castle in the forest. One rainy day, they ran into some people whose car had gotten stuck in the mud on the side of the highway near their property. The bishops helped them out. I said, what are you doing up here on a day like today? And they said, well, we come looking for this castle we keep hearing about. And I said, you know, when you find it, would you please? The only payment we want for our help is come back and tell us where it's at because we've been hearing about it. And they walked around the bend and they said, well, this is it. This is what we're looking for. The Bishop Stone Cottage was the castle that people had been talking about. And so after four years of listening to that, are you building a castle? Did you buy a castle and you're putting it up? What are you doing? And so Jim sat down around a fire one day and with his mom and dad and me, and he says, you know, the people want a castle. Let's build him one. The more Jim built, the more people stopped to admire his work. People would come up and say, are you going to live in it? And I'd say yes. And they say, are you still going to allow the public in? And I said, of course we're going to allow the public in. And the way you can pay me is help me wash the floors and clean the beds and keep the windows shiny. But then after several years, we said, there's no way. How could You couldn't even sleep. People would be coming in and out. And they were enjoying it so much the way it was. That's when we decided we would give it to the public through a nonprofit corporation and support a charity. And so that's how that all fell into place. 
Some friends and family thought they should charge admission, but Jim and Phoebe were clear from the beginning that they wanted it to be free. Have you ever gone anywhere or thought of going somewhere and you couldn't afford to go in? Jimmy and I are low income, extremely low income, by choice. Him and I are intelligent. We can make a living. I've had several businesses and I just wrote a cookbook. Our, our poorness is our choice. But there are people who don't have a choice. And we don't want to keep anyone out. They did put out donation boxes. That brought in a little money. It helped to cover some of the materials and to make up for wages that Jim wasn't earning at the welding shop during his time at the castle. And he spent a lot of time at the castle. He practically lived up there during the summer, and my sister lives up in Rye, so there was a point where he would just stay with her at nights, and he would just go up there, and he wouldn't even come to town. That's Jim and Phoebe's youngest daughter, Danita. Jim worked long days in the summer, trying to get as much done as he could before the fall came, and it got too cold to work with the mortar. As the castle and its towers got taller, Jim started to use a primitive block and tackle pulley system to move bags of cement and lift rocks into place. But beyond that, it was stone by stone. Phoebe and the kids would come up during the evenings, on weekends, and whenever else they could. As Danita remembers it, the castle was an integral but surprisingly mundane part of their family life. So what was it like growing up at the castle for you? On the most part, it was boring, but it was very entertaining, scaring the people. Climbing everywhere, I was a monkey, and I have all these old women. You shouldn't be climbing there, you're just a little girl, where's your parents? Oh my gosh, you're gonna fall and hurt yourself. And I would just laugh at him, I'd be like, you see that man over there? The one that's building the castle? That's my father. They'd be like, oh, okay. For the kids, the castle was just a giant jungle gym. So from Roy's Tower, in between, there's Roy's Tower, there's a chimney, and then there's a square tower wall. The chimney and Roy's Tower had this little two-foot-wide plank. And it was literally just, it's even worse than the catwalk, where that's wrought iron. And I used to love to cross that board plank. It had no railings, there was no safety, I mean, it was ta- attached, like, but, and everybody would freak out about me crossing that and that was another one of my favorite areas and that I got taken down obviously a lot of the wood got taken down because it started to rot you know and that that board would have probably been what like 60 70 feet up uh well from the ground yeah it's close to 100 or so none of the kids were ever heard on the castle itself but the bishop's life in the mountains was not without tragedy um, do you mind if we ask you about your son? No, I do not mind. Okay. Would you tell us, um, just tell us about him and tell us what, tell us what happened because I've read glossings over in the newspaper, but I would, I would love to hear from you. Well, he was, uh, four years, nine months old and he'd been with his dad all day down here in Pueblo where it was hot and everything like that. It was May 9th, uh, 1988. And the wind the day before had blown like tornado spots. And you might even remember a few places up in the mountains up there that are just the trees laid down. Well, it blew and it it laid a tree over across the highway on National Forest from the castle. And my oldest son, it was a Thursday, they didn't go to school on Friday, and he says, Mom, Dad, can I cut that tree? 
and we used uh, wood to cook and heat. And his dad gave him the saw, the chainsaw, and he went over there and started cutting it. Roy was in the house with me. I was starting supper. We all wanted to sit down as a family. We ran a generator, and we only ran it for a couple hours in the evening. And there was a series movie that had been on, and the last of the series was going to be that night, and Roy wanted me to read to him, and I told him, honey, I'm cooking supper, and we're trying to get done early so we can watch that program. So he went outside and started playing on a piece of steel that had ice on it, and his dad told him, he says, Roy, don't play on that. You're going to fall and hurt yourself. So then he went across the street, across the highway, to watch his brother. My oldest son is legally blind in one eye. And he was walking around the tree and everything, and he found where the tree had come out of the ground, the whole root system, huge, massive thing, left a hole that you wouldn't believe. And uh, in the process of cutting the tree and it being green, when you took the top of the tree off, it sproinged back up. And Roy had gotten into the hole because on our hikes, trees that were old and decayed and had them big holes, you could get out of weather in them. And we had taught him that. We taught him, you can get under there out of rain and snow and terrible winds. And he got underneath there and was fell asleep. And the tree set, springed back up like a big old rubber band was on it, and it crushed him. Um, so he was killed on the National Forest. He was killed doing what he did. And it was a terrible time in our lives. But as you see, God gives you what he thinks you can handle and learn from. And we survived. And it hurts. But we talk about him and we cry about him. And people remember him. And the tower that has the cement steps that goes this way and that way, that's named after him. That's Roy's Tower. We've never finished it because we can't decide what we're going to do with it. Uh, his ashes will eventually be there. They're not there now. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. If you're just joining us, we're telling the story of Bishop Castle and its sole architect and builder, Jim Bishop. In 1959, at the age of 15, Bishop bought a plot of land in the wet mountains west of Pueblo. In the late 60s, he began building a stone cottage and never stopped. Forty years later, his one-room cottage is now a monumental castle and a beloved tourist destination. It's believed to be among the largest one-man architecture projects in the world. Now 71, Bishop is battling a rare and aggressive form of cancer, and the ownership of his castle is in dispute. Even amid the grief after the death of their four-year-old son Roy in 1988, Jim kept building. It was hard. Jimmy put the roof on the castle that year, crying enough to probably go down the gutters, but he installed the roof on Bishop Castle that year, and that's what he'd say. He says, I've got to get this roof on here to 
catch my tears. Yeah. Did you did you find it hard to keep working on it after that, or, or you felt like that was a healing thing for you? It was real hard, but I couldn't stop. I just had to keep going. I had some people come in one day, a man and a wife, and they said, how can you stay here? And I says, what do you mean, how can I stay here? Well, your son died here, how can you stay here? I said, you know, I don't care where I go. I will not forget my son. I will think of him everywhere I go. So why go anywhere? I want to be close to him. And his, his spirit and his energy is still here. I want to be with him. Through everything, the castle was a constant in the Bishop family's life. Following the death of their son Roy, building was a source of solace for Jim. At other times, it was simply an outlet for his creative energy. As time went on, and the castle kept growing, word about it continued to spread, and more people each year came to catch a glimpse. From the beginning, the bishops had wanted to embrace the public, to build something that would inspire and entertain anyone who happened to visit. But issues with keeping it free to the public and taking donations meant that they had to become a tax-exempt nonprofit. Back in the beginning, before we had the tax exemption, the IRS wanted us to pay taxes, income taxes, on the donation boxes. You know, I can still remember the first time we put that box up, and it was a week later. There were two quarters in it. I'm supposed to add 50 cents to our income tax, which was meager anyway, and that's the reason that I fought for that. The process of getting a tax exemption proved to be far more difficult than they had expected. Phoebe applied for the exemption in 1976, and it took eight years before the application was finally granted in 1984. As an artist, Jim already had an anti-authoritarian streak, but the seemingly endless frustration of dealing with the IRS soured him on the government even more. This, says Phoebe, was when he began his now infamous rants. There's no just cause to save the country. It's an offshore bankrupt corporation. Wise up, sheeple. Wise up now. 9-11 was an inside job. Oh, summertime. Jimmy has always been a vocal person. Even when I met him. Uh, when we were engaged before we even got married, uh, I jumped out of the truck. Don't get away from me. But its he's not mad at the person that he's having a fit with. He's mad at the situation that made him have a fit. And then it turned into a show. And he would show off. As time went on, and Jim occasionally found himself on the wrong end of a zoning complaint or a lawsuit, his frustrations intensified. In 2002, it came to a head. Jim and Phoebe had long allowed weddings and receptions to be held at the castle. At one of these weddings in 2002, the reception got out of hand. It was supposed to last until 6 p.m., but went late into the night. Jim and his son Daniel tried to shut it down. Here's Daniel. When I went out and told them they needed to quit the party, that we weren't having a rave and the wedding was over, they got belligerent, and I went back in the house to avoid the fight. When I looked out the window, my dad was up on the balcony in a fist fight with these people. They were speaking on it. And I commenced to take actions to make them know that I was not going to put up with it, that today I understand this is how you deal with things. <laughs> the sheriff showed up to find members of the wedding party crying. Jim and Daniel were arrested, charged with felony menacing, and later released on $50,000 bond while the case worked its way through the court. 
It was around this time that a man named David Merrill first appeared in the bishop's life. My name is David Merrill. I'm first trustee uh, for the Castle Church for the Redemption of the Office Bishop. David Merrill, a.k.a. David Merrill Van Pelt, is the son of the late Luann Van Pelt, the actual woman in Colorado Springs who inspired Charles Schultz to create the character Lucy Van Pelt for the Peanuts. He's stocky with a full head of long gray hair, which he tucks back behind his ears. He wears wireframe glasses, a Bluetooth headset, and a beige outdoorsman's outfit with bulging pockets. Merrill didn't tell us much about his personal or professional life, and there's a lot about him that we don't know. What is clear, however, is that he's something of a prominent figure in the online community of sovereign citizens, freemen, libertarians, and tax protesters. He's a frequent poster in discussion boards on sites like Ron Paul Forum's Sui Juris Forum and SavingToSuitorsClub.net, his own website. Online, he writes at length about esoteric legal arguments and techniques aimed at delegitimizing the federal legal and monetary systems. He's also the author of a fascinating, if unusual, text called The Gospel of Pragmatism, but we'll get to that later. Merrill turned up at the castle sometime in 2002. After the wedding incident, there was talk that the charges might be trumped up in an attempt to seize the castle. After years of hard work, making the castle available for free to the public and being rewarded with a growing number of legal disputes, Jim's anger began to verge on paranoia. According to Daniel, the bishop's eldest son, David Merrill's ideas about the sovereignty of the individual appealed to Jim. His, his ideology was that we have a set of God-given rights and that nobody has to, the ability to control our breathing of the air and the airways and the, you know, like institutions like the Federal Aviation Administration and all that stuff. But they don't have the right to cover something that God gives us, the air around us, the radio waves, TV, any of that stuff. Merrill also had his own ideas about how best to fight charges in the legal system. He convinced Jim and Daniel to try his approach. Here's Merrill. I took them both up to Denver, and, and uh, we just basically you form a, an evidence repository, and it gets published through the United States Clerk of Court. Nowadays on PACER electronically. Um, that's the Electronic Publication Service for the U.S. government. And by doing so, what you establish is a record you become a court of record and you're authorized as a court of competent jurisdiction. And, and of course, you have to answer to other courts if they're competent. So you become a competent court, you have to answer to competent courts. If the other court has flaws, then you know it kind of falls by the wayside. So this is the, the objective of an evidence repository, as I call it, and that's done through the form of a libel of review. So Here's how Daniel remembers Merrill's advice. Uh, you know, he was telling us not to go to court. He was telling us to <laughs> just ignore it. Though he isn't a lawyer, Merrill can certainly sound like he knows what he's talking about. He has an incredible memory for legal jargon and concepts and speaks with conviction about his interpretation of the law. Court records from this time give some indication of what David's advice consisted of. In the fall of 2012, while Jim's charges in Custer County were pending, he filed a complaint against the Custer County Sheriff, the judge in his case, and others. The complaint is titled, quote, Counterclaim and Notice Lee Pendant in Admiralty, re God-given unalienable rights in the original estate. The court record is riddled with arcane legal terms that point directly back to David Merrill and the sovereign citizen movement more generally. Loosely speaking, the sovereign citizen movement is made up of people who, in one form or another, deny the legitimacy of the federal government. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, there are an estimated 300,000 to half a million sovereign citizens in the United States. 
ranging from hardcore libertarians to back-to-the-land hippies. Though David Merrill says that he no longer identifies with the sovereign citizen movement, many of his ideas can be traced back to it. Among other common tactics associated with the sovereign citizen movement, there are references in Jim's court record to maritime law and the use of a strategy for ignoring legal documents called refusal for cause. Um, what is refusal for cause? Ah, no idea. This is Dan Evans, a Philadelphia-based attorney who specializes in tax law, estate planning, and trusts. He makes a hobby of studying sovereign citizens and other tax protesters and the various techniques they use for evading U.S. tax laws. He maintains a webpage called the Tax Protester FAQ that details and debunks the myriad myths and fallacies used by people to avoid paying taxes. If Walmart orders, you know, 100 million widgets from some company in China and they arrive on the cargo ship in San Francisco and um, for some reason they are considered to be defective, there may be a remedy under the Uniform Commercial Code if Walmart refuses acceptance for cause. I, I have no idea why they think the Uniform Commercial Code applies to anything except what the Uniform Commercial Code was supposed to apply to, which was sales of, of property, sales of, of tangible, you know, widgets and things. You know, but they stamp it on court documents. Merrill's advice didn't seem to do much to help Jim's case. And according to Jim's wife, Phoebe, it came at a cost. All the money we paid David and we paid for the paperwork, none of it worked. We ended up hiring two lawyers. It cost us $36,000 in lawyers' fees, even though David gave him all of this bogus paperwork and put suits against sheriffs, judges, DAs, and all that kind of stuff. Every bit of that paperwork with David, even back then, Jimmy didn't know what the hell he was doing. It took two years to settle the felony case against Jim in Custer County, but once the family hired lawyers and took the case to court, charges were ultimately dropped. According to Jim's wife, Phoebe, Merrill was disappointed with the way things went down. When the case was over, David was not happy because we went to court. We used lawyers. We did the legal thing instead of what he said was the proper way for the sovereign citizen and all that. And Jimmy never got rid of his driver's license. He never got rid of his social security card. He never got rid of his birth certificate. He would have had to get rid of his wife if he had. Uh, but no, Jim never went David's way. Whether or not Jim took to heart all of David's ideas about the government and the legal system, he doesn't appear to have lost faith in David. After the case was finally resolved in 2004, it seems that Merrill left the picture for a number of years. Yet despite the fact that his advice had no tangible effect on the case, Jim seemed to think it did. Here's George Jorgensen, a longtime friend of the bishops. David evidently put together a bunch of paperwork for common law remedy in, in the court case that he had going. And, and Jim walked away. So that's, I think, why his opinion of David is, is so hot. If you listen closely to this rant from a video uploaded to YouTube in 2007, You'll hear Jim refer again to the wedding case as though Merrill's techniques had worked. They tried to put me in jail for 37 years on false charges just because the county commissioners couldn't control it with zoning over a drunken wedding party. Put me in jail with a 50,000 cash only. That's a violation for Amendment 8. So I filed treason, kidnap, grand larceny on a district court judge and sheriff of this county in United States District Court and common law remedy, saving the suitors in all cases the right to common law remedy. 
So they just kind of leave you alone now? Or? Yeah, they're leaving me alone now. And I'm There's no denying that Jim liked to rail against the government. There's no denying that the language and ideas in his rants closely aligned with those of David Merrill and of the sovereign citizen movement generally. But those close to Jim tend to downplay his rants. According to Phoebe, Jim just liked to put on a show. The way Jim's son Daniel sees it, David Merrill's ideas just suited Jim's outsized personality. When he brings back stuff to my dad about the Federal Reserve being bankrupt, that it hasn't been legal or common law since the creation of the Federal Reserve note and the banker's holiday, and my dad latches on to concepts like that and just becomes fanatical about it. And that's, it's all part of his nature. That's why he built castles and mountains, you know what I mean? That was, that was an idea he latched on to that any, anybody other than him would have maybe put a little thought into it, probably built a wall and said, F*** this, you know? <laughs> there ain't a dime's worth of difference between a Democrat, a Nazi, a communist, a Republican, a Marxist, a fascist, because they all serve the Central Bank of Europe. But we elect them... We Regardless of what he believed, Jim kept building. He dug the moat, fashioned a working drawbridge with a gate, and put a gatehouse on top, which became his summer home. And by the mid-2000s, visitors came by the hundreds of thousands each year to see his castle and to catch a glimpse of the castle builder. This is Wish We Were Here. Stay with us. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. If you're just joining us, we're telling the story of Jim Bishop and the castle he built with his own hands in the mountains just west of Pueblo, Colorado. Things began to unravel for the bishops in 2012. Phoebe, who'd long handled the business side of things at the castle, was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. It was around this time, said Phoebe, that David Merrill reappeared in their lives. Meanwhile, Jim's anger started to get the better of him. Around this time, he took to painting vitriolic signs and putting them up around the castle grounds. Here's his wife, Phoebe. When Jimmy's mind started going, those signs started going up. Jim's mental health began deteriorating, and by the summer of 2014, it was clear that something wasn't right. You can see the change in behavior in YouTube videos posted around this time. In a particularly ugly rant posted in June 2014, Bishop can be seen walking among castle visitors with his pants down around his ankles screaming strange racist epithets and seeming downright belligerent. I'll fist fight with anybody right on right out on the highway, including the government, including the sheriff, including all of them. Here's Jim's friend George Jorgensen again. Last summer especially when the signage got really bad and he was really random raving, of course he was going through this this mental problem. Uh, that's kind of documented by the encounters with the police coming up because it was getting out of control. According to Jorgensen, the sheriff was up at the castle a few times during the summer of 2014. First, it was in response to a fire on the property when Bishop burned down an outhouse that he had just built. The sheriff gave him a warning. A week later, Bishop's dog went missing. 
He and Jorgensen were alone at the castle, and in his anger, Bishop fired his shotgun into a ditch. The sheriff responded again and gave Bishop another warning. Finally, about two weeks later, in August 2014, Jim snapped. Here's Jorgensen again. This is when his real mental breakdown was happening. Uh, he was screaming about the politicians and, and, you know, your guys are losing everything. Wake up, as he likes to say, people, wake up. You're losing everything. Don't let them do it to you. And he actually had a pistol on his side. It was empty, of course. But, you know, somebody called him, you know, this guy's kind of freaking us out. So the sheriff come up. Jim saw him, so he took off running. And even though he wasn't threatening the sheriff in any way, this last legal thing had to do with resisting arrest because he ran away when he came up. So they, that's what they finally arrested him for, with resisting arrest. After Jim was arrested, the sheriff suggested that he needed help. Jim agreed, and he was sent for psychiatric care at Parkview Medical Center in Pueblo. They gave him medication, and after 11 days, released him back to his family. Here's Phoebe. He got out the afternoon of the 27th, only after we had a family meeting and all with Jim and the psychiatrist, and everybody agreed that we thought we could work with Jim. He would continue to medications. He would, he'd agreed to do this and had agreed to do that. Jimmy had lost 15 pounds. He looked horrible. He actually looked worse than he looks now. His eyes were sunk in and black. As a condition of his release from Parkview, Jim was supposed to attend group therapy meetings of his choosing. David Merrill offered to help. He knew of a regular meeting in Monument about an hour north of the bishop's home in Pueblo. Once a week, according to Phoebe, Jim would drive north to Colorado Springs, pick up David, and the two of them would head to Monument for the meeting. Phoebe says the group was a mystery to her. I don't know. It's something they hold in in Monument. I don't know nothing about it. Jimmy, if he could try to remember, he might be able to tell you. Jim couldn't tell us more about the meetings, but according to David Merrill, the group was dedicated to A Course in Miracles, a somewhat controversial New Age text written in the late 60s and early 70s by a medical researcher named Helen Schuchman. In it, Schuchman claimed to be transcribing the words of an inner voice identifying itself as Jesus Christ. The book lays out a spiritual worldview inspired by Christianity and with parallels to some Buddhist philosophy, emphasizing love and forgiveness. Some conspiracy theorists believe A Course in Miracles is somehow tied to psychotropic drug experiments and the shadowy CIA mind control operation, MKUltra. It's not clear how interested Jim actually was in The Course in Miracles, but for David Merrill, it seems to be an important part of his spiritual philosophy. It figures prominently in The Gospel of Pragmatism, a document that Merrill often refers to, which he wrote himself. In it, Merrill synthesizes ideas from sources as diverse as the Gospel of Mark, the Constitution, the Da Vinci Code, psychedelic philosophy, and his own family pedigree. It's kind of a living document in that I was working on it again this morning. He claims that during their time together at the castle between 2012 and 2014, he and Jim discussed the ideas that would eventually make their way into the document. It's a writing that uh, that I shared, I would read it aloud to Jim by the fire in the evenings and, and give him copies as I developed it. And, uh, I worked at it. Um, sometimes up at the castle while he and I would drive up there together and, and uh, I'd sit down at one of the picnic tables up on the gatehouse, for example, and, and uh, pull out my computer and start working on it. And, and Jim and I developed it together. I, it's authored by me, but um, certainly we uh, 
uh, he, his input was considered and, and integrated into the document itself. Merrill posted the text online for anyone to read. It reads like Merrill's attempt to connect all of his disparate intellectual and spiritual interests into a grand, unified philosophy. Merrill says that Jim accepted the gospel of pragmatism as the official creed of his castle. In a video dated September 28, 2014, that David Merrill posted on YouTube under the title Presenting Pragmatism, Merrill hands a copy of the Gospel of Pragmatism in a manila envelope to Jim Bishop. Jim, thin and beleaguered looking in the aftermath of his mental breakdown, accepts that envelope. We walked around the castle property with witnesses, which is called a survey. We surveyed Castle Church, and well, then it was Bishop Castle. And uh, so we did this survey, and then I uh, had the Gospel of Pragmatism printed out, and I handed it to him on a video and and he was uh you know you can tell in the video he's quite pleased that this is the doctrine for castle church or bishop castle at the time he adopted it for his castle but to hear phoebe tell it jim didn't make much of the gospel of pragmatism at least not that she could tell when we asked her about the document she went inside and retrieved several manila envelopes each of which had a different date written on the front i don't know jimmy come in walked in with these brown envelopes one day and put them in the corner of his desk I said, what do you got that? He says, oh, a bunch of junk that David gave me. A bunch of junk that David gave me. To Merrill, it seems that Jim's acceptance of the gospel of pragmatism solidified a plan that had been long in the making. Part of that plan was a name change for the castle. David Merrill claims that Jim had decided to change the name from Bishop Castle to Castle Church for the Redemption of the Office Bishop. According to Merrill, Jim believed that the new name represented a whole host of ideas relating to the moral bankruptcy of organized religion. He was understanding bishop is bishop of Rome, and bishop of Rome is the pope. And through the Nicene Council and and just in a kind of awakening of uh, genome or chromosome awareness, he's aware of his heritage in bishop, in the family name bishop. And so he was really saying redemption as forgiveness, forgiveness of the Pope, or forgiveness of the Vatican for misconstruing the message of Jesus Christ based in love, unity, and, uh, and joy. Again, Phoebe questions Merrill's account. I asked Jimmy about it, and he said, yeah. And I said, why? He says, because bishop is a bad thing. And I says, what do you mean it's a bad thing? He says, well, he says, uh, the popes and the two bishops are bad. I says, what are you talking about? He says, you know, the stuff that David talks about, it's the bishop's a bad name. And I says, you have now put a black place in my heart for you. It's just a little teensy-weensy dot. But how dare you try to say our name is a bad thing. Our name is not associated with the church. You've never liked association with churches. And I says, and you are doing this? I said, did you come up with the name? He says, well, it was a suggestion of David's. However, I agreed with it. So there was the adoption of pragmatism as the official doctrine of the castle and the name change. These two acts would establish the castle, David says, as a church and therefore as mandatory exception under subsection 508 of the U.S. tax code. According to Merrill, this would mean that the castle would not simply be tax-exempt, but it would be completely off the economic grid, beyond the reach of the IRS. But there was one more crucial step. 
Merrill believed that in order to ensure that Jim's vision would be preserved in perpetuity, the bishops needed to place the castle in a trust and make David first trustee. The trust, David told Jim and Phoebe, would remove all their personal liability. It would protect the castle from seizure, and it would allow them to be the beneficiaries of donations made at the castle. If this sounded too good to be true, well, there wasn't much time to think about it. Shortly after Jim quote-unquote accepted the gospel of pragmatism, he went to see the doctor about a strange blemish on his back. In early December 2014, he was diagnosed with cancer. It's called Merkel cell carcinoma. And chemotherapy apparently doesn't work on it. They're hoping the radiation did has worked because we caught it early. What happened is he had a little spot of skin, subservice skin, poke through his skin. You could see the strata of the skin separate, and it looked like a scar. So we went in to take the scar off so he wouldn't worry about it, and it turned out to be cancerous, and it had already gone to his lymph nodes. Jim soon began radiation treatment, and Phoebe took to caring for him full time. Meanwhile, David Merrill kept pressing forward with his plans. He drew up the legal documents for the trust and for the transfer of the castle to the trust. On February 9th, 2015, Merrill arrived at the bishop's house in Pueblo with paperwork. We had just come back from the doctor's office, the, the, the surgeon. He was concerned. You know, we were, we were upset, and I was upset, and Jimmy was tired, and Jimmy wanted to go to bed, and he's sitting in that chair, and he's miserable, and he's bent over like this. You know, I, all I was thinking about was my husband. And when David walked through my back door and came up to me and stood over my little table, and David put the paperwork in front of him and says, you need to sign these. Here's George Jorgensen, who was at the bishop's house when David arrived. Yeah, basically he showed up with all these papers saying that we're going to change this to the church for the redemption of the office, office bishop, which I have no idea what that means, saying this will protect you, it'll protect the heritage and the legacy, I'll become the trustee, and basically we convinced Jim that this was the thing to do. And Phoebe's looking at him going, you sure want to do this, and so... Jim is saying, yeah, yeah, David's my friend. He's never going to screw me. And uh, so she signed the papers. We witnessed them, you know. What they signed was a warranty deed, which is essentially a title of ownership. In signing it, Jim and Phoebe transferred ownership of the castle from Bishop Castle Nonprofit Corporation to a trust called Castle Church for the Redemption of the Office Bishop. We checked all this out with the Custer County Clerk and Recorder, and indeed, the transfer appears to be official. As far as the trust goes, David Merrill is listed as first trustee. His daughter and granddaughter are listed as successor trustees. The bishops are listed as the primary beneficiaries of the trust. There was a typo in the original paperwork, and 10 days later, Phoebe and Jim signed the same documents again. This, says David Merrill, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that they not only knew what they were doing, but what they were signing. So they actually had a do-over. This is not coercion when you, when you go down to the bank and you find witnesses and you find notaries, even though Jim's not feeling very good at the time, okay? You go through the trouble one day, and then 10 days later, you go through the same trouble again the next day. And so um, there's another... I'm, I'm just talking about some of the misreporting that's gone here that, that, uh, that I did as some kind of coercion of a sick man. Well, we designed this trust when, before Jim was even symptomatic. 
For her part, Phoebe claims that in the time between when they first signed the deed and when they signed it again 10 days later, she didn't even read the paperwork. I was busy being sick and taking care of a sicker man. Those 10 days in between, we were in limbo. I'd, I never read the paperwork. According to Phoebe, Jim had convinced her that signing the paperwork would simply grant the castle a better tax status. Jim had faith in David, and Phoebe had faith in Jim. He didn't want me to read it. Put it away. David knows what he's doing. He's going to help us. We can trust him. That's all, I, that's all I could hear. You know, I'd have to put my ear up to his mouth, and that's all he would say. That's what he lived with. David can be trusted. Do you think I would have signed it on the 19th if I had known, if I had read through this? No, because after the 19th, I read through it. And I got up and I told Jimmy, did you know that you were giving the castle away? Well, no, I didn't give the castle away. I says, well, that's what David thinks. He says, well, how could he think that? He's only the trustee. I says, yeah, but his name's on the deed. Technically speaking, when a piece of property is placed in a trust, the first trustee does own the property. However, they are obligated to manage the property on behalf of the beneficiaries of that trust. Any decisions they make regarding the property must be made in the best interest of the beneficiaries. So while a trustee controls the property, they do not own it in the way that we typically mean when we say that we own something. However, shortly after the paperwork was filed, David began telling people at the castle that he was the owner. He also began posting to online forums about his recent acquisition. On SavingToSuitorsClub.net, the website that he founded, he wrote a long post titled The Road to Ownership. In it, he tells the story of his relationship with Jim Bishop, discusses how he became first trustee, and describes how the castle connects to the gospel of pragmatism. Then, on March 5th, 2015, confusing matters even more, David Merrill posted a picture of Bishop Castle and the following text to ronpaulforums.com. On September 11, 2001, I acquired, among other things, this marvelous castle, formerly known as Bishop Castle in southern Colorado. Again, he says he acquired the castle on September 11, 2001, keeping in mind that he didn't even meet Jim Bishop until 2002. The bishops caught wind of the fact that Merrill had been telling people he owned the castle. For them, this came as a big surprise. They had seen the arrangement as a matter of formality. Doing it that way, changing the name, we would acquire a better, easily worked with tax exemption with the entities that were, were concerned. And I said, well, good, because I, got t- I was tired of dealing with, you know, all these reports and all this kind of stuff. And that's how they got me to change it. But for Merrill, while the taxes were certainly part of it, the creation of the trust was also clearly about something else entirely. Viewed most charitably, Merrill seems to believe that the trust was about his relationship with Jim, about the ideas put forth in his gospel of pragmatism, about proving that the castle is beyond the reach of the local, state, and federal governments, about protecting the castle for centuries to come. Most skeptically, and this is how Phoebe now sees it, the trust was a way for Merrill to take control of a valuable asset, and a way for Merrill to claim some amount of credit for a piece of art that he had no part in creating. Here's how Merrill sees it. There's so many things that indicate when you look at this clearly that it was not coercion. I'm actually doing them a wonderful favor and I'm going to continue doing it because um, they're, I believe now, in that state that this irrevocable part of the trust was designed 
to prevent. I mean, you don't make these plans carefully and then say, oh, God, I'm, I'm panicking, I'm, I'm emotional, I'm, I'm being, uh, you know, pressured and, and uh, blah, 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 I need this and that. And, and then you just throw the plans away. I mean, you know, this, these plans are for indefinite future of, of the castle artwork, the legacy of Jim Bishop being honorable and uh, his hard work always being recognized and uh, the work ethic that he lived, you know, for the past 46 years and beyond, um, building every stone and, and all the iron in that castle. That is worth protecting, and we've got the perfect way to do it. Phoebe Bishop has accused David Merrill of, among other things, elder abuse. It's her contention that neither she nor Jim were in any physical or mental condition to sign either the trust or the warranty deed for the castle. She has since hired legal counsel. For his part, David Merrill continues to represent himself as the trustee and owner of Castle Church for the redemption of the office bishop. He has tried on at least one occasion to send money in the amount of $1,000 to the bishops, which Phoebe has rejected. There are so many unanswered legal questions at this point that it's hard to say how this dispute will resolve itself. Can David Merrill legally call the castle a church by IRS standards? How will he account for donations, the majority of which come in cash? Or does he have to? Can Merrill legally give the cash donated to Castle Church to Jim and Phoebe and their kids as beneficiaries? Is Phoebe overreacting, as David has suggested, without giving him a chance to prove that he'll act as trustee in good faith? Is the trust itself even legal? Answers to these questions should come in the not-so-distant future. The bishop's lawyers served David Merrill with a lawsuit on June 4th. If David Merrill and the bishops do go to court, which looks like a good possibility at this point, it's anyone's guess what might happen. I don't, I'm not real fearful about what's going on up there right now, that David Merrill is going to win, because I see too much error in all of it. That's Daniel Bishop, Jim's eldest son and a board member for the Bishop Castle nonprofit. Nobody had the right to give him anything over it as it was done, in my opinion. There's just been, it's just, I believe that there's enough wrong and in what David Merrill is doing that the right thing is going to prevail. <laughs> and I hope to hell that David Merrill shows up to any court, if he bothers, because I'd be surprised if he actually shows up to court and listens to a judge tell him anything. Daniel spent a lot of time at the castle with his father and David Merrill in the early 2000s. He says he still sympathizes with some of Merrill's beliefs. However, Having believed in Merrill's anti-government ideas and having followed his legal advice back in 2002, Daniel now sees Merrill's principles as admirable, but misguided. I went through it and found out that the, the system he believes in, the freedom that he thinks of, only exists where you're not a part of the society. He's off to the, the side of the world and he sees himself as something better than the rest of us. David Merrill thinks that all of this will blow over and that the legacy of the castle that Jim built is more important than what he describes as Jim and Phoebe's understandable emotionalism during this confusing time in their lives. Is that more important to you, that legacy, than your living friendship and living trust with the Bishop family? The last thing Jim said to me, and Phoebe too, she said it just before Jim. Uh, she said it in a lot more words, but Jim uh, stood up, he looked me in the face and he said, shook my hand and he said, David Merrill, I trust you. 
For Merrill, that trust is irrevocable, and that means both the legal trust and the personal trust that Jim placed in him. Now that he's first trustee, he sees it as his role to protect Jim's lifelong art project at all costs, from the government, from legal liability, from the IRS, and even, in this instance, from Jim and Phoebe themselves. But for the bishops, the trust has already been broken, in every sense of the word. Here is Jim in a statement that his daughter posted to YouTube, talking about David Merrill. I thought he was a good friend of mine. The only way this could be beneficiary is him seeing the way, the way I am and pissing me off enough, making me fight, and know that I will not die until it's until the mallet is sold. Do you want to fire David Merrill from being your trustee? Yes, I do want to fire David Merrill. The sad irony of this whole situation is that Jim spent decades fending off mostly imagined attempts by the sheriff, the DA, the IRS, and others to seize his castle. However, in the end, it was the very man he enlisted to help him fend off these imagined enemies who now controls it. But beyond the debate over who owns it, or what they intend to do with it, the castle is still there in all its granite glory. The stones that Jim placed one on top of the next, the wrought iron balconies, the panes of stained glass, and the towers. However it changes, and whatever else it becomes, the castle will likely always be, first and foremost, a monument to the decades of work that Jim put into it, and to the family that helped him. Jim, can we ask you one more question? One more. All right. When you drive up to the castle now, and you you see your work, and you, you, you get out of your car and, or your truck, what do you think about your work? It's still amazing that I did all that work. That's what I think about it. It's still, it amazes me every time. Every time I go up there, it amazes me. No matter what route I take, and there's three routes. Is it everything that you had envisioned it to be, or did it, did it become something that you couldn't have imagined? Something more so. Uh, when we used to come home for the winter, come back to Pueblo and earn a living and and function daily. Uh, and then we'd end back up there around May, end of May into June. When you first walk around that bend or drive around that bend, I mean, it just like, ah, oh, it just hits you. We actually did that. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Radio Colorado College. Many thanks to our intern, Emily Frojan, our production assistant, Amelia Whitmer, and to Jeff Beery, our program director. Thanks also to composer Stephen Scott, whose compositions and music with the Bode Piano Ensemble was used throughout this episode. You can hear this episode again at krcc.org, or you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where you'll get the latest episodes downloaded to your computer or mobile device. For KRCC and Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. 